This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So the last episode that I had recorded was with Mari Lee, one of my CSAT colleagues and friends in California, and we were maybe discussing the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial that has been going on. I don't know that we discussed it a lot, and that was intentional. Uh, We aren't legal scholars, nor have either of us sat down professionally to assess either of them as clients, which, you know, as mental health professionals, we are bound by the Goldwater rule that we cannot diagnose people. We cannot diagnose celebrities or people in the public eye. We're not able to diagnose them based on our training or the experience that we have maybe working with similar clients when we have not actually taken them on as a client or sat down and done any type of evaluation with them. So just a quick overview about what the Goldwater Rule is. The Goldwater Rule is a statement of ethics that was first issued by the APA or the American Psychiatric Association in 1973. And it restrained psychiatrists from speculating about the mental state of public figures. So the rule uh, restricts psychiatrists or other professionals who are able to diagnose. They cannot do this with somebody they have not personally evaluated. Now, the APA Ethics Committee reviewed the Goldwater Rule recently in 2017 and affirmed it, kind of reaffirmed it, saying, no, we're going to keep this rule in place. We think this is a good rule. And they even expanded the rule beyond diagnosis to cover almost all psychiatric opinion. This was kind of when there was widespread public discussion regarding the mental health of President Donald Trump. And so, you know, that kind of came up to be questioned again if that should be a rule. Um, You had many many mental health professionals kind of speculating about what his diagnosis may be. And so they affirmed that we cannot do that if we have not personally evaluated this particular individual. And we can't just, it's not just about diagnosis, but we can't really talk about psychiatric conditions that maybe aren't necessarily a diagnosis. Now it's called the Goldwater Rule because it arose from events that occurred during the presidential campaign of 1964, when Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who was a conservative Republican, was running against the incumbent President Lyndon Johnson. So they were soliciting psychiatric opinions about Goldwater at the time. Magazines and journalists were soliciting psychiatric opinions about Goldwater for partisan purposes to try to help the other candidate win. And the incident proved deeply embarrassing to the American Psychiatric Association and for the position of psychiatry as a medical science. So during that presidential campaign, psychiatrists were explicitly asked whether Goldwater was psychologically fit to be president. And the cover of Fact Magazine was the one who was kind of covering the story in that way. They trumpeted 1,189 psychiatrists that said Goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president. Now, what the cover didn't say was that 12,356 psychiatrists were asked and only 2,417 responded. So the vast majority of the responses were unsigned. What we know is 1,189 answered the question that he was not fit psychologically to be the president. 
657 said yes, and 571 said they didn't know enough about the matter to have an opinion. Now, both the APA and the American Medical Association warned Fact Magazine against publishing the responses of physicians who had never examined the candidate. However, the responses were published, and they filled 41 pages of a special issue that was called The Unconscious of a Conservative, and they were promoted in advertisements in the New York Times and other newspapers, and they included such statements like, quote, I believe Goldwater has the same pathological makeup as Hitler or Castro or Stalin or other known schizophrenic leaders. Another one said, it's my feeling that Senator Goldwater appeals to the unconscious sadism and hostility in the average human being. Another one said he was a mass murderer at heart. So, you know, it became apparent that this was not a good way for licensed professionals to behave. And it, you know, caused Goldwater and his wife fear. Now, he did lose in a landslide and he sued for libel and he won in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the award for damages was sufficient enough to put the magazine out of business. So at that time, the APA declared professional embarrassment and it said that by attaching the stigma of extreme political partisanship to the psychiatric profession as a whole in the heated climate of the current political campaign that the magazine had in effect administered a low blow to all who would advance the treatment care of the mentally ill of America. Now, just going forward, so when Donald Trump and the Goldwater rule came up again, you know, it was kind of discussed that he had displays in his temperament, his decision-making and his behavior that so consistently violated presidential norms that there were questions of his mental health that were raised by citizens and journalists and public officials. Barely three months into his tenure, 28 members of Congress introduced a bill seeking to prepare the 25th Amendment for possible use, and it would allow for the formal determination of the president's mental fitness to govern by a nonpartisan panel. There was public discussion of diagnosable conditions that could be affecting the president. Those continued to go on, and some of them were with or without mental health experts. Not everybody discussing it was a mental health expert trained and licensed. Many psychiatrists and psychologists chose or were asked to offer informed opinion to a confused and concerned public. Others chose to criticize colleagues who violated the Goldwater Rule. So the consensus arose that the president displayed, at a minimum, narcissistic personality disorder, and references to President Trump's narcissism have become commonplace and widely accepted, despite the Goldwater Rule being affirmed and it still being in place. Now, some people do talk about the Goldwater Rule and how it might limit First Amendment rights of free speech. Also important, it was pointed out that the Goldwater Rule restricts those who know most about mental health from contributing to public discussion about political candidates and others at a time when the mental fitness of leaders has become more important than ever. So your average citizen can be discussing mental health diagnoses and mental health conditions of candidates, but it would restrict some of the you know more informed and more trained and licensed professionals from contributing to that conversation. However, like I said, it was reaffirmed and it was expanded. So that's kind of where we stand on that. So that's kind of a long way of going about, but I also wanted to put in there so that just listeners know and people are aware that mental health professionals 
psychiatrists, psychologists, anybody who's able to use the DSM to assess diagnosis up to, you know, their psychological assessments that are done by psychologists and different things like that from those above kind of my licensure as a licensed clinical social worker that they've put some restraints on us and said that it's not really okay for us to use our experience and our training to speculate about a public figure, somebody that is, you know, we see in the media, but that we haven't actually sat down and done evaluations or assessments with. And I do think that that is a good thing. I think it would get more confusing and probably lead to more divisiveness if mental health professionals started to weigh in. And, you know, I, I think that would become more confusing and, like I said, more divisive. I, I don't know that the Goldwater rule being removed would actually help what we're dealing with or what we're currently looking at in our political landscape. So I want to kind of put that out there so that you know that going into this episode. Now, I'm recording this episode, the recent court case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. We have a verdict. And so I wanted to not necessarily, I will kind of discuss because it's public information, what the verdict found. I'm not necessarily going to weigh in one side or the other. I might give a few thoughts about what I think about the limited uh, coverage that I listened to or viewed from the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. But just for those of you maybe who have tried to avoid it, I apologize. I'm not going to go into detail about it here. But if you are trying to avoid it and don't want anything to do with it, or maybe it triggers a personal relationship that you've had, here's your disclaimer warning right now. And it's okay if you don't want to continue listening to this episode. But the recent court case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard centered around an opinion piece that Heard wrote in 2018 for the Washington Post. The title of the piece was, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. So Amber Heard is the one who wrote that Washington Post piece, and she's an actress and an ambassador on women's rights at the American Civil Liberties Union. Now she talks about in the article, which is still up online, you can find the Washington Post article that she wrote and that was kind of at the center of this legal case. Now, I have to say, when I read it, I agree with a lot of the things that she wrote in the article. And if she wrote it as an ambassador on women's rights at the American Civil Liberties Union and didn't also include personal information and you know what Mr. Depp believed was defamation on him, then maybe there wouldn't have been this big uproar in this court case around it. But she did. And she talked about it in her own childhood and in adult relationships. And that's what kind of was this recent court case. That, that is what it was centered on. So she says in the Washington Post piece, she says, I was exposed to abuse at a very young age. I knew certain things early on without ever having to be told. I knew that men have the power physically, socially, and financially, and that a lot of institutions support that arrangement. I knew this long before I had the words to articulate it, and I bet you learned it young too. She went on to say, like many women, I had been harassed and sexually assaulted by the time I was of college age, but I kept quiet. I did not expect filing complaints to bring justice, and I didn't see myself as a victim. 
Then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. She said, we are in a transformative political moment. The president of our country, this was kind of the end of her article, towards the end of her art article. She said, the president of our country has been accused by more than a dozen women of sexual misconduct, including assault and harassment. Outrage over his statements and behavior has energized a female-led opposition. The hashtag MeToo started a conversation about just how profoundly sexual violence affects women in every area of our lives. And last month, more women were elected to Congress than ever in our history with a mandate to take women's issues seriously. Women's rage and determination to end sexual violence are turning into a political force. I think this is how she ended it. I want to ensure that women who come forward to talk about violence receive more support. We are electing representatives who know how deeply we care about these issues. We can work together to demand changes to laws and rules and social norms and to right the imbalances that have shaped our lives. So Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife Amber Heard for alleged defamation over this article. He sued her for 50 million. And while Depp was not named in this Washington Post piece, he claimed that her allegations in this piece made it difficult for him to land movie roles. And then Amber Heard also filed a counterclaim and pursued 100 million that Johnny Depp paid. So on June 1st, of 2022. So just, you know, a little while ago, the jury shared the verdict that they had arrived to. And they found that Amber Heard had defamed Johnny Depp on all three counts. She was asked to award him 10 million in compensatory damages and 5 million in punitive damages. Now the judge did reduce those amounts to make it more in alignment with the findings and what the counts were. And then Amber Heard was found to have a partial win in her case, and she was awarded $2 million in compensatory damages, but she was not awarded any punitive damages. So again, you know, kind of having watched this and watched it from a mental health perspective, you know, they had each side has psychiatric, psychological, or like therapists who had met with each of them individually or together as a couple. So, you know, they were part of the case and they had either testified or provided documents that, you know, kind of became an issue in the case. Now I will say the forensic psychologists, they're typically going to find what the side who was hiring them needs them to, to find. Now, does that mean that their findings aren't valid? I don't know. I'm not a forensic psychologist and I haven't done the training to be a forensic psychologist, but they are paid a lot of money for the work that they do. And so there may be, you know, I mean, obviously, if you don't find on behalf of whatever we're going to say, right, then you're not going to pick up a lot of jobs. And that would, you know, then limit what you're able to do in your career. Now, it did seem to me, just watching it, that one of the psychologists for Johnny Depp's side had met with Amber Heard and diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. And I could see both of those as kind of the case played out in different things that I read or witnessed. Mostly I read or watched the testimonies of the experts for both sides. I could see how that could be a diagnosis that they would arrive at. Again, that's not my diagnosis. That was their diagnosis. But watching the behavior and having worked with borderline clients in my 
career as well as histrionic clients in my career, I can see how that would show up for them. I also would say probably Johnny Depp most likely suffered from substance abuse issues more so. It it looks like he, you know, got sober from some of the more harmful substances that he did, but it doesn't sound like all of the substances that he did, he is sober from or got sober from, from what I can tell. And so I, I would think that that's still going to play a part in things. You know, they both had text messages or recordings from the other person and they sounded horrible. You know, I don't think any of us could say that they were not both abusive. Now, I've read a little bit of the comments online. I try not to get into the comments online too much, but I like to more read articles by journalists about comments online, more so than I like to just kind of go down the rabbit hole listening to the comments or reading the comments online. But it it became pretty clear pretty early, right, that Johnny Depp had a large fan base who definitely supported him. Again, I'm not saying that there weren't things that he needed or should be supported on, but he's not an innocent victim. You know, he, he also played a part, I often will say, to clients that I'm working with, we don't get to our adult years or, you know, he's in his fifties, I'm in my fifties. I will tell them like, I don't get to this age and get to claim to be a victim. I play a part in things. I, you know, can't just point my finger at everybody else without also looking in the mirror and seeing the role that I play and how I contribute to certain circumstances. And so, you know, he's not innocent. Amber also is not an innocent victim. I don't think, you know, that we have either of them as innocent victims or the way that we as a society, that we as a culture prefer to see our victims. Now, that's what I want to talk about. Not so much about their court case or the verdict, although they do have a verdict there, but I want to discuss more how we as a society consume or make sense of the information that is given to us. Now, I certainly think we should be asking the questions about whether that court case should have received as as, as much attention as it did. Maybe it shouldn't have even been uh, publicized. I can, you know, see both sides of that, but I do believe is that for the average viewer, and I know many who viewed it, you know, um, with a lot of dedication, the way that they viewed it I don't know that that's helpful. I I think maybe it holds up a mirror. This Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case, I think holds up a mirror to us as a society about where we are if we choose to look in that mirror and if we choose to ask ourselves some questions in order to bring about the change that we so desperately need. So I'm also thinking about, you know, as I have read the verdict and kind of, again, watched some coverage about the verdict, One of the questions that also comes up for me is how is this going to play out historically? When we're looking back at this 20, 30 years from now, what will we see then that we are blind to now? And, you know, when I asked that question, there's three examples that came to my mind pretty quickly. And, you know, it it wouldn't take much more. And certainly a Google search would bring up a lot more instances where we do have that position history. We have the advantage of looking back 20, 30 years at these instances 
And history has given us better insight, more awareness, and, you know, a little bit of the cringiness that when we look back at that, we see things that we just didn't see back then, but we see them, I don't know, I think I see them pretty clearly today. I don't know, maybe not everybody sees it that clearly, or maybe everybody isn't on the same page now with how history kind of has painted those stories. So I wanted to talk about the three that came to my mind first. And I will say the three that came to my mind were women. Like I said, in my discussion with Mari Lee, we talked about that men can also be victims of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, which is the more current updated term. There can also be a back and forth where both are committing intimate partner violence. Most often intimate partner violence is kind of looked at through the lens of one being the perpetrator and the other being more of a victim, which is, I think, how both sides in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case were trying to argue for their client that they were the victim, the other was the perpetrator. More often than not, females tend to be in the less powerful position, and so uh, females aren't always, or we don't have the same numbers as males when it comes to those perpetrator categories. And having said that, I absolutely have worked with men where they are victims of intimate partner violence. And while sometimes they might react and it escalates or their reaction trying to get away, trying to shield themselves might, you know, do something to the other person. Typically there is one more that is a perpetrator of that violence and the other one who is trying to protect themselves and kind of try to reduce the violence that happens in those moments or in those situations. So while I thought of three women off the top of my brain, that doesn't mean that we can't also find those stories of males. And we do have those, you know, there's some good podcasts out there that have looked back at the 80s and, you know, what, what has come to be termed the satanic panic of the 80s. Often men got wrapped up in those in those false allegations. And, you know, it, it definitely impacted their life. It impacted how people saw them in their communities. Many of them had to move or try to get away from it and had a hard time kind of getting away from the accusations. And, you know, now again, we're how many years away? I don't think we're, I, you know, was a teen during the 80s, so I don't think it's that long away, but it is. So wherever, how many ever decades further down the road from the 80s, we can look back now and we see things that we didn't know back then or we didn't see back then. So I think that's an interesting perspective, you know. Um, also, when we look at historically kind of what was happening for families and particularly for women in the 80s, you know, women were able to go to work and also be married and have children. You know, prior to the later 70s, women could be fired if they got pregnant. They could be let go from jobs once they got married because their employers knew they were going to be having families at some point. And so those protections came about more in the later 70s. And so we started seeing more women and mothers and wives move into the workforce. Now, when I say, you know, more of them were moving into the workforce, a lot of that, there is some privilege around that. It was white, middle-class women who could help maybe impact their family finances, make the situation a little more comfortable. You know, prior to that, there were always lower class women 
white women, women of color who were in the workforce. But, you know, in the 80s, you started to see more women who traditionally had stayed home once they got married and started having children. And they started to enter the workforce. And, you know, that's one of the theories that is out there that says that kind of predated the satanic panic, you know, that that change to our societal structure, that change to what we had kind of gotten comfortable with in, in the idea of the American family, which again was an I maybe an idea or an ideal and didn't actually match up to what a lot of families experienced, but that there was just a lot of fear as women went to the workforce. And I think fear that, you know, what was going to happen to their kids and look at what was happening to their kids. And maybe we could keep women at home or scare them back into their homes with this satanic panic. So there was that. And like I said, there were a lot of men who were falsely accused. There were also women who were falsely accused, similar maybe to the witch trials. And so things that when we look back with the advantage of, you know, a couple decades down the road, two or three decades down the road, we see things and we understand things from where we are currently that we didn't understand at the time that we're going through that. So the first woman I thought of was Anita Hill. So in 1991, Anita Hill, who was an attorney, testified that the Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And she worked there as an advisor to him. Now, both Thomas and Hill had risen from poor rural childhoods in segregated America. They both had graduated from Yale Law School and launched promising legal careers in Washington, D.C. Their paths converged at the U.S. Department of Education in 1981 when Thomas hired Hill to be his special assistant in the department's Office of Civil Rights. Now, shortly after that, according to Hill, Thomas began harassing her, a pattern that would continue after Thomas left his post to become chairman of the Equal Opportunity Commission. And then Hill left Washington in 1983 and became a law professor in her native state of Oklahoma. She was initially reluctant, according to herself, to come forward with her allegations against Thomas. In the late summer of 1991, though, she was contacted by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee who had heard rumors of possible misconduct by Thomas against at least one female employee in his past. So after a three-day FBI investigation led the White House to determine the allegations were unfounded, the reporter Nina Totenberg of NPR learned of the FBI report and revealed Hill's accusations to the public for the first time. And then Hill moved with him and continued to be his assistant. Now that was one of the big things um, when she was being asked questions by the senator about if he was harassing you, why would you move and continue to be his assistant? Hill's testimony was unlike anything heard before at a Supreme Court nominee hearing, where there was a committee of 14 white men who was chaired by then-Senator Joe Biden grilled her in a televised live hearing. Now, the Senate ultimately confirmed Thomas's nomination in a 52-48 vote, and Hill went home to a new life, she was condemned by many. She was facing death threats. And in her newest book, Believing, I think is the name of it, Believed, Believe, I think it's Believing, she says that she has no regrets about stepping forward. She recently said in an NPR interview, she said, I had important information about an individual who was picked to sit for a lifetime appointment on our country's highest court. 
It was not just a professional duty as a lawyer, but I believed it was my ethical responsibility to come forward in the best way and the most effective way that I could. And that's what I did. Now, at the time of the hearing, Hill felt isolated. But afterward, you know, she was touched when she talked about how she was flooded with stories of other people who had similar experiences. She said hearing from them and just realizing that I was not alone in facing this kind of scrutiny and actual hostility was affirming. Now, Hill's testimony against Thomas and the process by which nominees to the Supreme Court are vetted were re-examined in 2018 when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court, despite Christine Blasley Ford's allegations that he had sexually assaulted her in 1982. Anita Hill in this interview with NPR said that 30 years later, I'm here to say that even though Clarence Thomas was confirmed, I do believe that what I did was effective because it opened the conversation publicly in a way that had never been done before. She said, I've heard from people whose lives have been changed because that conversation was opened. Now, when she was talking about how her life has changed in the 30 years since that hearing, she said, you know, it's really hard to sum up all the ways that my life has changed since 1991. She said, I've changed my career. I've changed my location. I've actually changed my focus of work outside of teaching from sexual harassment in the workplace and employment discrimination. She said, I've expanded it to include other forms of gender violence because I realized through interacting with victims and survivors that of all kinds of violence that are pervasive in this country, there's this interconnection between sexual harassment and intimate partner violence or incest. She said, I've heard from incest survivors, survivors of sexual assault, rape, street violence. She said, all of those are a part of what I've been working on since 1991. Now, when she was asked about the system that made Justice Thomas's appointment possible, she said, my concern is about the systemic problems that exist in protecting people who commit gender violence or misconduct. So she says what she wants to really focus on is where is the process that we need to be in place that will fully vet judges and Supreme Court justice nominees. She said, we have a process right now as evidenced in 1991 when she came to testify and then again in 2018 that really is non-existent. She says, I'm not even sure I would call it a process. Neither Christine Blasley Ford nor I knew where to go with our complaint. She said a process, an effective process, would have clear guidelines about where an individual should go if they have information about a nominee. She said that didn't exist in 1991 and it doesn't exist now. So, you know, when I hear her talk about that, I think, okay, so if we have a system where victims of somebody who is rising in the power structure can't go report abuse, do we have a system that wants to look at abuse? Do we have a system that wants to acknowledge what can go horribly wrong? Do we as, you know, viewers or consumers of this type of information, do we actually contribute in any way to a meaningful process or a meaningful structure in which people who abuse their power can be held accountable or the people who are victims of that abuse can report that. Now, one of the things I've been you know, wondering about all of these people who are so passionate and so adamant when the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard hearing was going on, I'm asking myself like, now what? Now what? Like if they are really that passionate about which side they were on, whichever side that was, 
What are they going to do to bring about meaningful change? Or are we just going to move on to the next kind of horrifyingly entertainment story that people can consume? Now, Anita Hill talked about some of the hostility and the death threats that she faced in 1991 after her testimony. From what I've read, Amber Heard has talked about the death threats and the hostility she has been receiving even prior to this case being televised, but especially during this televised case or court proceeding. I haven't heard that Johnny Depp's side is saying that he is getting death threats. And I don't know this, right? But we do in our country still have a gender imbalance. We do not have a system in which the genders are treated equally. And there is an imbalance and we tend to give more power to men. Again, that's not in every single circumstance do men have more power. But our structure as a whole is set up to give men more power. We still have patriarchal structures in place that we haven't changed So she talked about, Anita Hill talked about one particular night when she was at home. It was a Friday evening and she got a call from the dean of the law school that she was working at at that time saying that there was a bomb threat on her home. She said it just happened that there was a weekend where my mother, who was 80 years old, my sister and her three young children were visiting me and we had to make a decision about evacuating the home and whether the threat was so clear that we needed to evacuate or not. She said there were other vulgarities that came through in the mail. Terrible, nasty materials. She says, I'm talking about physical excrement, human excrement, I suppose. I don't know exactly what it was, but it came through the mail. Those threats that happened in 1991 were mostly in the mail. There were threats on the telephone, but I suppose today what happens is, with all of the social media and the different platforms for threatening folks, the threats are actually even more vivid and more pervasive today for witnesses coming forward. She said, we have not stopped that. And the uncertainty that's created by the systems that we have in place really helps fuel that. So, you know, these are people who are so upset by Anita Hill coming forward and making these accusations against Clarence Thomas, which, you know, she still maintains 30 years later that she was not wrong. And she also has people who have come forward. I think even at the time, she had people who came forward who said, They knew that these things were happening or that she had talked with them about these things happening at her workplace. Or, you know, in the instance of the case we kind of just went through in the public with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Again, there are people who are angry that Amber would say these things against Johnny. If you're Team Johnny, right? You are so upset that Amber would say these things that somehow it gives you a pass to behave in some of the most vilest, gross, unhealthy ways, right? And I just think, what have we lost sight of here, right? Because again, I just don't think anybody gets a pass. You can be upset about somebody's behavior, but that does not justify you going to the extremes because of how you view the other person, right? I'll say this with my clients often, you know, if if they're not able to talk about the part that they play in their relational dysfunction or in their current family dysfunction, right? Not maybe not their family of origin dysfunction, but I want to know that they can understand how that family of origin impacted them and how that's still showing up and playing out in their current life. But if I'm not hearing a lot of accountability, I may just ask them like, Hey, I'm not really hearing much about the role that you played or how you contributed to this cycle or this pattern or whatever was happening, right? 
I just want to know, like, what do you see when you look at yourself? Or are we only looking at other people? Because that's, you know, something I need to help them with if they can't look at the part that they play. And not look at it and then get highly defensive or highly reactive, you know. Some of what Amber Heard or Amber Heard's team have described that she has endured because of this case, it's unspeakable, right? I mean, it's not unspeakable. People are speaking it. But to me, it's unspeakable. It's not something I wanted to put on my podcast. It's not something I wanted to in any way encourage or or really give much attention to. Now, Clarence Thomas vehemently denied Hill's allegations, and he invoked racial discrimination, calling the hearing a national disgrace. I mean, Anita Hill was also a black woman, and so I think he was saying the fact that you know, he had to come before the Senate Judiciary hearing. That was the racial discrimination that no other Supreme Court justice had had to endure what he had to endure. He called it a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deemed to think for themselves. Now, Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania at the time was saying, can you imagine Thomas's harassment or of committing flat-out perjury? Is That's what he was kind of accusing Anita Hill of. And then Senator Orrin Hatch from my home state of Utah even accused her of borrowing the Coke can incident. You can Google that if you don't know what the Coke can incident was about, but that was part of her testimony. And he accused her of borrowing the Coke can incident from the 1971 novel, The Exorcist. Now, despite Hill's testimony, and like I said, she had four corroborating witnesses who said that she had talked about Thomas's behavior at the time, I think there were also other women that had experienced similar behavior from Clarence Thomas. So despite that, the Senate voted to confirm Thomas 52 to 48, which was the narrowest margin in about a century at that point. Now, when Joe Biden, if we fast forward 30 years, when Joe Biden was poised to announce his presidential candidacy, he made a phone call to Anita Hill to apologize for the role he played leading that Senate inquiry. And in an NPR interview, she was asked about what he said when he called to apologize to her. So she said, I got my call from Joe Biden. And what he said was that he was sorry for what had happened to me in 1991. He also said that since 1991, he had been involved in efforts to protect women from violence, including the Violence Against Women Act, including action while he was the vice president in the Obama administration around violence on college campuses. There was a campaign that he was in charge of from the White House that engaged college students. And she said, those were things that I was grateful to hear him talk about. She says, what I didn't hear him say was that he clearly understood how his handling of the 1991 hearing had impacted people beyond me. She says, I didn't hear that in his apology that he understood that the Senate Judiciary Committee's handling of my complaint in 1991 had been harmful to women throughout this country. He thought the affront was a personal affront to me, but it was really affront to all individuals who have had complaints and want to come forward and want the certainty or some kind of assurance that they can come forward and be treated fairly. She said it appeared to women as a model of how they could be abused by a system and that nothing would be done about it. It wasn't just the outcome of a confirmation or a vote, but it was the whole process that people found offensive to their sense of what the government has a responsibility to do to hear victims. She said, it's never too late to start on this. When you look at the numbers themselves, she said, just look at the numbers, the prevalence of the problem. Three of the last five US presidents 
and two sitting Supreme Court justices have been accused of abusive behavior. It didn't stop them from getting the position that they were seeking. She said, the fact that we have the problem that is occurring regularly almost every year, there's a new scandal in our military, then that the U.S. Civil Rights Commission has done work recently to discover that there's a problem in our federal workplace, and that's just the government alone. She said, when you look at the private institutions, we start to really see that this problem is systemic. It's pervasive and that we need some leadership to address these issues. Now, she did say, you know, that her faith in the courts is still strong. She said courts have an important role in our country. She did say that she thinks the Supreme Court is weakened when individuals on the court are weak. And she said, that's why I think it's so important for us to get these processes right so that we can, in fact, get the best, most credible people on the court. She said, at the very least, that's what we can start to work towards. Now, the next person that came to my mind was just a few years later, and this is Monica Lewinsky. So the story broke in 1998 that President Bill Clinton had carried out an affair with a young former White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. The media eagerly prepared to make her the face of the scandal. In newspapers and on cable news and talk shows, she became variously a slut, an innocent victim, a liberated woman, someone sexy, someone fat, someone feminine, someone unwomanly. Her name became synonymous with a sex act and her humiliation became a national spectacle. Now, that's kind of the high level version of things that were said about her. If you, you know, just did uh, a Google search on um, the story and how it was covered, even from reputable resources, you will find more specific details about how she was discussed and names she was called in the media and by journalists. Now, later, years later, in a article with Vanity Fair, Lewinsky wrote that she became a social representation, a social canvas on which anybody could project their confusion about women, sex, infidelity, politics, and body issues. Now, when the story initially broke, you know, I think there was maybe four or five ways that it was covered, all of which really put Monica as the villain in the story and not so much President Clinton. And it took, I think, I mean, there were some initially who were pushing back against that and who were talking about the age difference and the power positions. You know, one is a 22-year-old intern who's not even getting paid to be an intern. The other is the President of the United States. That's a huge power differential. And, you know, even though Lewinsky acknowledges that she pursued the president, you know, uh, people were saying, regardless of Lewinsky's behavior, the president of the United States should not have been involved in that. He should have been able to walk away from that. He should have been able to deny her advances and not get caught up in the controversy that he did. Now, in a Time magazine article, they wrote, when it comes to women, Clinton has had a lifetime of enablers, not just the friends who egged him on, but also the ones who helped him sidestep accusations. In this you know, particular Time magazine article, it was a special report on the scandal at the time. And the author of this article wrote, if it takes a village to raise a child, maybe it takes a circle of complicit friends 
to help a grown man go on acting like a teenager. Now, one of the things that, you know, depending on who you are, maybe or what your beliefs are, later in that year, um, this was in September of 1998, in a CNN USA Today Gallup poll, it found that Clinton's approval rating had actually gone up. He stood at 64% approval rating. And then there were 31% that thought he should be impeached and 36% that thought he should resign. So the numbers definitely were not working against Clinton, but they were definitely working against Monica. Now, as the years have gone by and as she's you know, matured and had to understand this from many different angles, and I think she's talked about the fact that she's gone to therapy, Monica Lewinsky begins to take more control of her narrative, of her own story. One of the things she seems to be able to recognize and somewhat navigate, I don't know that she's fully at a place where she can navigate the nuances and the complexity involved in all of that, but she will take accountability. She does not say, you know, that she had no idea and didn't see it coming, that, you know, it was forced. You know, for many years, she has said it was a consensual relationship. And she often said that the real villain in the story was Ken Starr, who kind of uh, prosecuted and kind of started the media witch hunt that she experienced after he published his report. But then in 2018, in the midst of a resurgent of the Me Too movement that started in 2017, she expressed a couple of other thoughts. And I think this was, was this in her TEDx? No, this was in her Vanity Fair article. And so she wrote, now at 44, I'm beginning, just beginning to consider the implications of the power differentials that were so vast between a president and a White House intern. She said, I'm beginning to entertain the notion that in such a circumstance, the idea of consent might well be rendered moot. This, and then she wrote in parentheses, sigh, is as far as I've gotten in my reevaluation. I want to be thoughtful. So again, she, from 22 to 44, that's as far as she's been able to look at and see the implications of the power differentials. And that maybe, maybe the power differential in their sexual behavior with each other might not be consensual because of those power differentials. Now, I think it makes sense that Lewinsky is cautious and thoughtful about this question and maybe somewhat intentionally unwilling to commit to one particular interpretation of the facts. Every one of the stories that we have told about her or listened to other people tell about her, even the good ones, contain within itself the possibility of another story in which she is humiliated. And she is fully aware that the fact of her being humiliated and vilified has not gone away. She said so often, she explained this in her Vanity Fair essay, she said so often, have I struggled with my own sense of agency versus victimhood? In 1998, we were living in times in which women's sexuality was a marker of their agency, owning desire. And yet I felt that if I saw myself as in any way a victim, it would open the door to choruses of, see, you did merely service him. In 1998, we excoriated Lewinsky for being a woman adjacent to the idea of sex. Not having sex would have saved her from our scorn and the public humiliation. Now, part of the project of feminism over the past 20 years has been to broaden the narrative 
and to create space for a world in which a woman can exist where she holds both her sexuality and even being close to a sex scandal and not be understood as being deserving of humiliation. But I don't know that we're there yet. I think we still have this purity test that we apply to victims, especially female victims. And this was applied to Monica Lewinsky as well, right? Is she enough of a victim for our sympathy? Which also leads to the question, how much of a victim does one have to be in order to deserve respect? And can a person be both a victim and a woman expressing sexual agency? I think we still have really distinct or really rigid binaries as to how we view women. And I think we still view women very much through a patriarchal lens, which divides women into either you're a good woman or you're a bad woman. And if you're a bad woman, you can't be a victim. And if you are a victim, we are going to humiliate you. And if you're a good woman, you can't be a victim. And it just doesn't work that way. But I don't know that we're beyond that yet as a country. As I read about the verdict, I mean, I don't know that the verdict wasn't what it should be. You know, I, like I said, it, it, from what was presented, it seems very clear that both engaged in abusive behavior and that the relationship brought out those family of origin issues in some really toxic ways. And going from what the content or the comments online are, it is still very clear to me that our country has a lot of work to do around misogyny. So the last one I wanna talk about was in 2007, so a little further down the road, and this was the case with Amanda Knox. So if we go back to 2007 and we look at what was happening, so this time Twitter was just coming online. There were about 5,000 tweets per day. Facebook was still in its data harvesting infancy with less than 100 million users. But the Amanda Knox story tapped into something previously unlike tapped into, right? It was a vein of irrationality, of rage, of misogyny, pettiness, paranoia, that as most of the world has since come to understand, has just kind of moved along with the human species and kind of just been flowing in the background. It's been maybe unshared and unspoken at times, but then it comes into focus with a lot of amplification and a lot of intensity. And then when we added into this, the internet. So this is probably one of the earliest cases where the internet really kind of spread it like wildfire. So on the night of Halloween, the night after Halloween, sorry, 2007, British student Meredith Kircher was murdered in her home in the Italian hill town Perugia during what was most likely a burglary gone wrong. So Amanda Knox is now 31. She's been twice convicted and twice acquitted of killing Kircher, who was 21, in the home that they shared in the Italian university town of Perugia in November of 2007. Now, Knox was kind of described as Kircher's oddball American hippie roommate. And she immediately attracted the authorities' attention for being on the crime scene when they arrived and acting in ways that they found inappropriate, like making out with her boyfriend and doing yoga stretches. Local police racing to solve the case as students started to leave the university town made a mess of the crime scene and committed forensic blunders in the lab among a lot of other mistakes. 
the local magistrate was kind of afflicted with some indigenous superstitions and he proclaimed that the murder was a satanic rite and it set off global media feeding frenzy. And, you know, maybe in hindsight, something else that was just the beginning. If we look now from the perspective we have in 2022, I think we could look back and see that the coverage of that case was maybe the beginning of what we see happening in media and in politics and in relationships and dialogue and conversations currently in the United States. So the Amanda Knox case kind of marked the first time that this bizarre cult of credulity emerged online, it had tens of thousands of people energetically subscribing to the most heinous possible scenarios while refusing to accept more reasonable alternatives. So kind of this, which is now familiar scene played out where vicious social media swarms that often were led by trolls and used online pseudonyms hurled accusations of fake news at reputable outlets while demonstrably fake news was published regularly for people to consume. There was doxing, lawmen were attacked as shills, journalists were accused of being on the payroll. A theory um, was put out in which anyone who was connected by money or in the case of the magistrate's version of the case by deviant secret cults could be up for being attacked. Now, I don't know if we were watching Amanda Knox and the coverage and everything that played out in that case. I don't know that we should have been super surprised by a much more recent conspiracy theory, Pizzagate, which, you know, revealed millions of people, millions of people who were willing to believe that Hillary Clinton ran a satanic child sex ring beneath a popular Washington DC pizza parlor, which turned out when one of these conspiracy theorists and believer of this Pizzagate theory showed up to rescue the children who were trapped in the basement of this pizza parlor, discovered that there was no basement, that there could never have been a basement. But while this conspiracy theory was being propagated, you know, many of these same people who believed the Pizzagate conspiracy refused to acknowledge the testimony of legal and ethics experts like former Manhattan U.S. attorney Preet Bharara or former FBI director James Comey regarding the corruption of Donald Trump. Now, the online spectacle that was the Knox phenomenon played out mostly in what we call back then the blogosphere, where people who maybe didn't have qualifications or training or experience could post and put out and disseminate strong opinions on various websites that were devoted to parsing the case from the two opposing sides, either the innocent or the guilty. Most people coming down on the side of Amanda Knox being guilty. Now, the investigation and the trial and the appeals dragged on for more than seven years before the charges were finally thrown out in 2015. But by then, tens of thousands of commenters on both sides of the innocent guilty divide had trolled each other about the main characters in the trial as if they knew these people personally and could see into their minds and know what their vilest or purest thoughts were. Now, Knox, who has always declared her innocence, spoke about the moment she was found guilty for the first time and sentenced to 26 years in jail in 2009. She said, my innocence didn't save me because the media created a story and people liked that story. I was the dirty man eater, Foxy Noxy. She accused the media of producing clickbait stories while she was imprisoned 
instead of examining the evidence of the case. She also spoke about her family being tormented by the press. She said, I wasn't innocent until proven guilty. I was a wise, drugged-up whore. It was unfounded, but it awoke people's imagination. These sensational and defamatory images also entered the courtroom. The investigation was contaminated and the jury corrupted. It was impossible for me to have a fair trial. Now, on November 1st of 2007, the robber, Rudy Gader, this is what eventually was found to be the culprit, right? So Rudy Gader entered the house and raped and killed Kirchner. His DNA was left and then he escaped the country. He was tried and convicted. However, despite all the attention on the case, hardly anyone had heard the name Rudy Gader because all of the focus had been on Amanda Knox. Now, many people, when Rudy Gader, when it came out that his DNA had been found at the crime scene and they'd been able to match it to him, many people speculated that there's no way he could have done it by himself. And so then Amanda and her boyfriend had to be his accomplices. And, you know, they couldn't quite look at the fact that they were wrong and that they had misread and misassumed and gotten into active imagination about what had happened. They couldn't just look at the fact that that's not true. They still had to find a narrative in which they were right. So like I said, Italy's highest court threw out the conviction in 2015. The European Court of Human Rights has since ordered the Italians to pay Knox damages for Perugia's bad police work. The case against Knox is now widely believed to have been a case of wrongful imprisonment, but for millions of people, her case or her case being thrown out, still they see that as fake news. Now I, I wanted to just talk about, I went to the Me Too movement.org website. I like the statistics that they put on their website. Let's just look at some of the statistics. I know I provided in my last episode, I provided some statistics about intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So let's look at abuse maybe in a little bit larger lens of sexual violence and look at how pervasive this can be in our society. So one in 10 elderly persons suffer abuse, including sexual abuse, within a one-year period. Among those aged 60 and over, the lifetime prevalence of sexual assault is 7%. One in 10 youth detained in juvenile facilities experience sexual assault or sexual abuse while in custody. One in four women have experienced rape or attempted rape during their lifetimes. That's according to several national U.S. surveys. One in four women returning from the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan reported that they were sexually assaulted while they were deployed. One in eight people had someone threaten to post and or post sexually explicit images of them without their consent. This is according to a 2017 study by the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Women were almost twice as likely to be the targets of non-consensual pornography than men. One in Every five survivors of confirmed sexual abuse in ICE detention is transgender, even though trans people make up only one in 500 people detained by ICE. One in 12 respondents said they'd experienced at least one instance of non-consensual pornography, or also known as revenge porn, in their lifetime. 25% of respondents were 18 at the age of the first incident. 12% of transgender youth report being sexually assaulted in K-12 settings by peers or educational staff. 
22% of transgender respondents who have interacted with police reported harassment by police, with much higher rates reported by people of color. 46% of respondents reported being uncomfortable seeking police assistance. 24% of American Indian transgender students, 18% of multiracial transgender students, and 17% of Asian transgender students, and 15% of Black transgender students have experienced sexual assault. 24.2% of active duty women and 6.3% of active duty men indicated experienced sexual harassment in the year prior to being surveyed, which was 2018. Now, back in 2017, Tarana Burke founded the Me Too movement. No, she didn't found it then, but that's when it regained kind of its second resurgence. So she writes about how that movement started, how she started that. And she says, the Me Too movement started in the deepest, darkest place in my soul. She writes, as a youth worker dealing predominantly with black children and children of color, I had seen and heard my share of heartbreaking stories from broken homes to abusive or neglectful parents when I met heaven. During an all-girl bonding session at our youth camp, several of the girls in the room shared intimate stories about their lives. Some were the ordinary tales of teenage joys and anxieties, but others were quite painful. Just as I had done so many times before, I sat and listened to the stories, comforted the girls as needed. When it was over, the adults advised the young women to reach out to us if they ever needed to talk or if they needed anything else. And then we went our separate ways. She writes, the next day, Heaven, who had been in the previous night session, asked to speak with me in private. I knew Heaven as a sweet-faced little girl who clung to me throughout the camp. However, her hyperactive and often anger-filled behavior betrayed both her name and the light, high-pitched voice with which she spoke. I was always having to pull her out of some type of situation. As she attempted to talk to me that day, the look in her eyes told me this conversation would be anything but ordinary. She had a deep sadness and a yearning for confession that I read immediately, and I wanted no part of it. Finally, later in the day, she caught up with me and almost begged me to listen. I reluctantly conceded, and for the next several minutes, this child, Heaven, in a halting voice, told me about her stepdaddy, rather her mother's boyfriend, who was doing all sorts of monstrous things to her developing body. I was horrified by her words, and the emotions welling inside of me ran the gamut. I listened until I literally could not take it anymore, which turned out to be less than five minutes. Then, right in the middle of Heaven sharing her pain with me, I cut off this little girl's story and directed her to another female counselor who I believed could help her better. I will never forget the look on Heaven's face. I will never forget because it haunts me. Still, I think about her all the time. The shock of being rejected, the pain of opening a wound only to have it abruptly forced shut again. It was all on that precious little face, but I wasn't ready to help. As much as I love children, as much as I cared about that child, I did not yet possess her courage. As much as I loved her, I could not muster the energy to tell her that I understood, that I connected, that I could feel her pain. I couldn't help her release her shame or impress upon her that none of it was her fault. But most of all, I could not find the strength to say out loud the words that were ringing in my head over and over again. I just watched her walk away from me, visibly struggling to recapture those secrets and tuck them back into their hiding place. I watched her put her mask back on her face and return to the world. And as I stood there, 
I couldn't even bring myself to whisper the words circling my mind and soul. Me too. Now, like I said, when I was starting this, I'm not one of those who believes that, you know, women can't be abusers and that it's always men and men can't be victims of intimate partner violence. I don't believe that. What I do believe is we have not created the systems and the structures in our society in the United States to effectively deal with these types of situations. And watching them for entertainment or watching them to tap into your unexamined or unprocessed emotions, your unprocessed biases has not been helpful. I think we need to first do our own work. Then we need to start looking outward and say, how can I start to make my community, my family, my circle of friends, the circle of my kids' friends, how can I make it safer? How can I consume information that I come across and that I can see in a more informed way and in a way that calls for the change that we so desperately need? You know, I, I think about the fact I've been called twice to jury duty and each time I, I went, didn't try to get out of it, took the day off work. As soon in both instances, one was a rape case. I don't remember what the other one was. And, you know, you have to kind of say who you are as a potential juror, right? In both instances, as soon as I mentioned that I was a mental health provider, I was dismissed. Apparently, mental health providers don't make the best jurors. Or we just have a different way of consuming the evidence presented to us or the story that is created by the prosecution or the defense team, whichever one, right? We're presented a story that maybe with our training, maybe with our experience of sitting with people in sessions after sessions after sessions and hearing their stories, maybe we might know something that the other jurors who are selected might not know or might be more easily swayed. Now, I'm not saying that to say that mental health providers are better than anyone else, right? Most of us as mental health providers get into the field because we're trying to figure out our own issues. We're trying to make sense of and examine our own stories. But in that process, maybe there's something productive that happens that doesn't make us the best people to just consume the story that is presented. Maybe we ask more questions. Maybe we try to think about the other side. And again, I don't think that that comes easily. I don't think that's something that is taught in school with the interns that I have at our clinic who are in school or even when I was an intern, when I was in my master's program or newly graduated. I don't know that I had been taught that or could be taught that. But year after year after year after decade of sitting with people, you hear something about their story that makes it harder to just consume the story somebody else wants us to see and the story that they don't want us to see. And I think that's true when people do their own work. When we do our own work and we have to see the story the way we want to see it or we prefer to see it, and then we also have to see our story through the lens that we would rather forget, we would rather not see, we would rather soften it or pretty it up, I think when we go through that process and we have somebody there who can maybe point out our blind spots or put into words what maybe we're struggling to put into words or maybe we're trying to soften something and they 
give it the actual word and, you know, it kind of lands a little bit. I've had that happen when I've gone to different therapists and they say, oh, this, and I'm like, well, hits me in my stomach and almost takes my breath away when somebody uses the right word. And I have to sit with that. I, I heard that. I know they know I heard that. And now we have to sit and talk about that reality that just entered my experience. I think each of us can play a part. Now, maybe I'm preaching to the choir. You guys listen to my podcast. It's clearly a mental health slash recovery podcast. And so maybe you're already doing that. And that's great. I think that is wonderful. That's a big part of why I wanted to start the podcast in the first place. And we have to start speaking up. It may not work overnight. Probably it's not going to work overnight. Let me be honest. It's not going to work overnight. But we need to continually speak up about what we see. We need to speak up about how to better consume the information that is presented to us. And we need to be able to better connect with people who are different than us. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.